0: Welcome to the Talking Poem Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Green. On each episode, I invite a poet, critic, or reader to bring in any poem they'd like to talk about for any reason. We'll see what delights us, what excites us, and potentially what frustrates us. And we'll see where the poem and the conversation turn. Then our guest today will share and talk about a poem of hers. And after that, we'll have a little silliness because I can't help myself I'm so happy today to have as my guest Joy Priest. Originally from Louisville, Kentucky, Joy is the author of Horsepower, which was selected by Natasha Trethaway as the winner of the Donald Hall Prize for Poetry, and she's the editor of Once a City Said, a Louisville Poets Anthology. She's the recipient of a 2021 National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, a 2019-2020 Fine Arts Work Center Fellowship the imprint Paul Verlaine Prize in Poetry, and the Stanley Kunitz Memorial Prize from the American Poetry Review. She is, as of this fall, an assistant professor of African-American and African diaspora poetry in the University of Pittsburgh's MFA writing program. Joy, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Charlie.
0: Before we get to the poem, I just want to take a moment to reiterate support for the people of Palestine. We are recording this on Saturday, October 14th, on the brink of a full-scale ground invasion by the Israeli military after days of sometimes indiscriminate and sometimes deliberate targeting of civilians. By the time this episode releases, it's almost certain that Israel's military and government will have done more and done worse Whatever happens by the time this episode is released, the people of Gaza will continue to be in grave need. If you can, please attend pro-Palestinian rallies and support aid groups like ANERA, the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund, and Medical Aid for Palestinians. Links are in the show notes. Joy, is there anything you'd like to add?
1: Um, I just am glad that you made a statement on this episode. I'm in full support of that statement. And there's some really great articles circling today, especially by Jewish scholars and writers on the matter, like David Kleon and Jewish Currents. And I think Gabe Wynett put out a great article on dissent.
0: Let's transition. Let's talk about the poem. You've chosen the poem Somewhere Holy by Carl Phillips from his 1995 collection, Cortège. Before you read it, would you like to preface it in any way?
1: I'll just say like I'm perpetually curious around this poem. And I think, you know, that's the reason I love poetry as a genre is I never feel like I finally have it figured out. And I think that's what leads to its profoundness for me. And that's why I chose it.
0: I have some similar responses to this poem where I have questions and a lot of curiosity, but let's go ahead and I'll ask you to read the poem and then we'll talk.
1: Somewhere Holy by Carl Phillips. It has an epigraph for Aaron, for others. There are places in this world where you can stand somewhere holy and be, thinking, if it's holy, then why don't I feel it, something? And while waiting, like it will any moment happen, and maybe this is it, a man accosts you, half in his tongue, half in yours, he ask if maybe you are wanting to get high. All the time, his damaged finger twitching idly like on purpose at a leash that holds an animal you can't quite put your finger on it first until you ask him, ask the man, and then he tells you it's a weasel. And of course it is, you've seen them, you remember now, you say, of course, a weasel. There are men, Inside the world who never mind how much they tell you that they're trying, can't persuade you that it isn't you. It's life, it's life in general, where it hurts, a fear of everything, of nothing. When if only they would name it, maybe then you'd stay. You all the time, aware it's you that's talking. So who's going anywhere but here beside them? Otherwise, why come? Why keep on coming? When you can't get to believing what they tell you any more than you believed, the drugs the other man was offering wouldn't harm you. Still, you think, you took them and you're still alive, enough to take the hand that wants, that promises, to take you to where damage is, a word that's all, like yes, so yes, you say, I'll come, you tell him, show me.
0: Oh that's fantastic. So you said before you start reading that there're things you're very curious about in the poem and I'm curious what some of those are.
1: I think it's a it's a result of Carl's style in general and because I recently did this lecture for this one interview called the Aiken Taylors I had read Garth Greenwell's essay on Carl Phillips and so I have his thoughts about it stuck in my head and I feel like I can't say it any better but he he calls it an articulation of restlessness and that the way that Carl's syntax, the syntax is recursive and it follows like the pattern of thought in your head. And it's not trying to finally know something. It's like, it's trying to present an accurate transcript of feeling so that that everything is there in front of you, but there is no like resolve to it. You know, I tried to read Carl Phillips a long time ago when I was like, maybe an undergrad. And I was like, what the hell is happening? I don't get it. <laughs> and then later, you know, I read him and I think this was the first poem I read where I was like, wait a second, you know, and I get this. And like, I had an appreciation for the control he has with the line and this and the sentence and the syntax and and what he's doing with it and what he's doing with line breaks.
0: That's great. That actually some in a way gets at both the thing what I really like about this poem and some of my questions about the poem because I love how the poem mimics the subject where it's starting out in this place where there's nothing. There's this expectation of something but there's essentially no reaction or at least not the holy reaction you would expect and then basically it's in two parts. Both parts start There are places in this world and then ends with a speaker saying something in italics. And then there are people inside this world who and saying something in italics. And so it's like this move from just his initial response to things and then what he actually says, what he actually does. I do get lost in some of the syntax, though. I always really love poems where there are really long sentences that unfold, you know, throughout stanzas or even throughout the whole poem. And I feel like it's always a risk to make that poem can, or rather make that sentence hold up grammatically and also so a reader doesn't get lost. And I do feel sometimes and in this poem, especially like you mentioned, I get lost a little toward the end of the poem. Where do you find yourself getting lost?
1: Well, first, I want to say, like, Carl's syntax is a brave syntax. Like we have to translate. There's a translation that happens from like what's happening inside of our brain when we when we're thinking through something. So you have to do a kind of translation. And I feel like Carl bravely, and as close as I've seen it done, gets that interior dialogue down. It's like a a score of his thoughts. It's rendered in the way that it might come through the mind. It has a capacious effect. What we never think in a linear constructed sentence That's what writing is, like composition is, right? As you know, I know you've taught many composition classes, probably like we all have. But Carl, the way that he's disrupting and intervening on his own sentences as he constructs the poem, it allows for all of those thoughts at once to come in. There's no resolver, like he never arrives at a final answer or articulation. I think his syntax is resisting that as well. So it can be frustrating and maybe you get lost, but, and I don't know, maybe it's because I've read this poem like 50 times, but I don't get so much lost anymore because I think I'm not trying to follow so strictly the proper syntactical construction of the sentence, but I'm trying to follow, I'm trying to follow the feeling and not the thought. Does that make sense?
0: That makes total sense to me because my initial response to reading the poem was the kind of awe at the end that it gets to where it gets it, it's not that he gets to the feeling of holiness but he's gets to this place of continuing to want to be shown and more actively moving toward that and so i felt this sense of awe and i find that what you say about translation and of thoughts and also the kind of looseness of thoughts is very much his style i taught um his book speak now a few years ago when he came to read and the students were so thrown by that it was a first year writing class and they had read by and large little to no poetry and they were very thrown they're like why is it moving this way and i i find myself accepting that now with his poems and also at times Maybe it's the sort of annoying editor part of my brain that never shuts up. There's a time when I I want to be able to tie something back grammatically because I love some of the moves like can't persuade you that it isn't you. It's life. It's life in general where it hurts, a fear of everything, of nothing, when if only they would name it, maybe then you'd stay where the movement, it, it has that movement of internal monologue. I do want to go back to what you said about the structure
1: of the poem. There are three sentences in the poem. Um, The first, there are places in the world where you can stand somewhere holy and be thinking if it's holy, then why don't I feel it something? The second is there are men inside the world. So we switch from like, there are places in the world to there are men inside the world who never mind how much they tell you that they're trying, can't persuade you that it isn't you. And then the final uh, sentence, still, you think, which breaks that pattern that the other two set forward, still you think you took them and you're still alive. For me, the first sentence presents the philosophical conundrum of the speaker who wants to feel something. The speaker wants to feel something. Another reason why this poem, I think, was accessible to me when it was is because like, I was working through uh, early sobriety and so suddenly things made sense in this poem. And there's this interaction in the poem between holiness, drugs, and men. And the conundrum the speaker is dealing with is like, I want to feel something. So I've come to somewhere, to a holy place, you know, and there's this turn to men who like can't persuade the speaker. It isn't him. It isn't him that has something inherently wrong with him is the way I'm reading it. The speaker is not convinced of that. And it feels to me like because of the way that that has been paralleled next to the first sentence, that the speaker believes that it is him that is the problem that's preventing him from reaching something holy, from feeling something, from having that ecstatic experience in the world. that's where the drugs come in for me and I was thinking how the second sentence starts like there are men in the first is there are places in the second is there are men inside the world almost as if the speaker wants to get outside of the world as a kind of like ecstatic experience. And I'm also thinking about how like addiction or the drug usage is a way to escape. To get outside of the body or the reality that you're in by having an ecstatic experience, but it. it's a way to feel something. Other definitions, like I wrote down for ecstasy, is mystic self-transcendence, removal of the mind or body from its normal place of function. And obviously, there's a drug called ecstasy. So, like those two sentences for me, not only is there a rhetorical parallel, but they set up a parallel between two things that the speaker seek out to try to feel something
0: i love that i I love the connection to thinking about it in terms of sobriety and drugs especially that choice people inside the world is such a fascinating choice whenever a, a poem posits something like that it also implies the opposite the outside the world and it's so interesting because there's a the people inside the world have something reasonable to say to the speaker it's not you this is life this is how it happens and yet there is still this desire for whatever being outside means and that's just such a great choice that he makes and it's so fascinating to me especially because I did something similar where I wanted to make sure I was reading the sentences in outside the poem and I sort of broke it up into the three sentences and they have that great parallel structure with, there are places in this world where you can stand somewhere there are men inside the world who and this is a place where the difficult to follow grammar for me is fantastic because we get the double negative of can't persuade you that it isn't you never mind how much they tell you that they're trying and this sentence gets kind of chopped up by commas and pauses in a different way but it's one that really gets at the complexity of you know negation being outside being inside and it's just it's really really powerful and I appreciate you by the way mentioning your own sobriety in this public space that's you know can be difficult to talk about and I love it as a lens for thinking about the poem because I hadn't really thought about it in that way
1: I've only been kind of speaking about publicly in terms of writing because it's for me inseparable and I feel the same kind of kinship with this poem and maybe with this poet, because in this pursuit to seek things out, and I do want to get back to the craft of the poem, but just a little sidebar. In the pursuit to seek these things out, to feel something as a writer, you, you have to be able to feel something, you think, to make your art. And there are certain ways... That when people are using substances or men or whatever they go to to feel something, it's a way to like very quickly man- manufacture a feeling, you know. But it's kind of like the reason why I bring my sobriety into it is because as a writer, what I've learned in sobriety is this kind of maybe counterintuitive thing, but when you take away the substance or the uh, these other addictions, people, food, or whatever that very rapidly manufactures that feeling, out of it, you're removing the thing that stands between you and yourself, like you and the work. The syntax may seem messy, but it's really highly crafted, which it makes sense to me because it's like an early Carl Phillips poem. In the second line in the first couplet, you can stand somewhere holy and be. Even something like that where the line integrity makes its own suggestion. it To me, it's like speaking to the speaker's frustration of like, okay, I've come to this holy place and I still don't feel anything like it's supposed to work. Like you should be able to just go somewhere holy and then be holy. Rather than getting lost in the syntax, there are moments where something surprises me as like I wouldn't have went there myself. And I don't know why you're telling me that which then amplifies that thing for me. This poem is very rhetorically strategic. And I think those moments are like, like in the second, one of those moments in the second sentence, I feel like it's sacrilegious to talk about sentences in poems, but the, the second sentence, I'll just start from the beginning of it. There are men inside the world who never mind how much they tell you that they're trying, can't persuade you that it isn't you. It's life, it's life in general, where it hurts, a fear of everything. I don't expect where it hurts to be life. It's life in general where it hurts. It isn't you that that hurts or the implication is like the hurt is a new idea. It's a way for a new idea to come into the poem because the first idea in the first sentence was the speaker wanting to feel something. That's what the speaker was struggling with at first and what we were trying to the the sort of resolve we were waiting on. But then suddenly in this sentence, it's hurting is presented as as a problem. Which is in opposition to the first problem, which is like needing to feel something. So it's like I don't expect that hurt because I didn't expect it. It's amplified to me. And then it draws my attention to, you know, this tension happening between wanting to feel something and then wanting not to feel hurt.
0: You know, that is a fantastic way of thinking about it, because it's he is seeking feeling while having feeling. It's just that the feeling that he doesn't want is the one he feels so acutely, I want to come back to something you you said you you feel maybe it's sacrilegious to talk about sentences in poems. I love talking about it in part. So the way you read it earlier, which I really appreciate, is you hit those early line breaks hard because they do exactly what you're talking about, where they set us up for one meaning and then it gets deeply complicated by the following line and. I always talk about this with my students, a sentence is one unit of thought and a line is another unit of thought and their intention with each other. And this poem just makes so much great use of that. The other thing I wanted to go back to is you mentioned sort of talking in a way outside the poem, thinking of something standing between you and experience we talked about this as a kind of translation from thought to speech and this is getting away from the poem a little bit which is okay with me i always tell my students that thinking is the enemy of writing the first year students hate when i say that because they're like that does not make it easier but that when i always tell them as soon as a phrase leaps into your head or something leaps into your head write it down don't think because when they sit down i tell them they're trying to translate from multiple modes of thought and that Something about a poem like this is that it's emphasizing both the power of language as a way to present thought and modes of thought and some of the limitations of it. Like it's explicitly the limitation of why can't my thought or whatever part of my cognition reach this moment of holiness?
1: Mm -hmm. Why can't I think my way to it? You know, and then Terrence Hayes says, I'm not trying to get it thought. I'm trying to get it feeling because thought is like, it's similar to a substance or a person or whatever, again, whatever you go to, to kind of eject yourself out of discomfort or reality in that it gets in between you and being present for the experience, like just being in the experience, like feeling through the experience. I guess it feels sacrilegious to talk about sentences because I don't know, for lack of a better word, rule is like the unit of a. Uh, of thought and a poem is the line and but I think the poem employs both units of thought even though we just talked about thought not being (laughs) you know how you get into the poem but one thing I want to talk about before we get out of here is that weasel because that's like number two reason why I picked this poem
0: yeah that's on my list of questions I have no idea what to make of that weasel (laughs)
1: I have some thoughts or I have some feelings about the weasel.
0: Please. Hey, hey, thoughts and feelings, either and both. Please go ahead.
1: So, first of all, the debate always comes up in class with my students when we do this poem about like whether the weasel is real or whether it was actually there or not. And, you know, oh, it's such a strange thing to suddenly enter the poem And I think that's a good debate to have because, you know, as poets, we can just make up something to use. It's like symbolism, you know, to throw a symbol in the poem, not that other genres can't use it. But like, I think we have more freedom, like we don't feel as beholden to what really was actually there, um, like a memoirist or someone One thing about this poem is it makes me feel like, first of all, it's not in America. So it's in a different kind of society. There are places in this world is one of the things that suggests that for me. Somewhere holy is another thing that suggests that because we don't have really here ancient, iconic holy sites. And then um, the other thing is the man accosts you half in his tongue, half in yours, which is a really peculiar description, but can only suggest to me that the languages. Tongue also being within the religious image system too. It strikes me as maybe like a heavily accented English. And so weasel in that context doesn't feel that out of the ordinary to me. Like in other societies, like weasels might be a common pet, but whether or not it was actually real is such a bold and peculiar symbol. And that makes me go, even though I think I know what something is, it always makes me go look up the definition of it to wonder the What else could the poet be activating here in terms of symbolism that I need to get? We know like the the weasel is kind of rodent, I guess, but it could it's also, you know, colloquial for a deceitful or treacherous person or the verb like to achieve something by use of cunning or deceit, and thinking about Carl Phillips. And the, the major themes of his writing, which are queerness, queer sex, r- religious um, themes. And Garth Greenwell also points out like bondage, S&M, or like sexual devi- deviancy. A lot is happening around this weasel. Okay, there's so many things to talk about here. Let me just start with the delineation, the, um, the release of information. So we we see the man first. A man accosts you, half in his tongue, half in yours. He asks if maybe you are wanting to get high. All the time, his damaged finger, twitching idly, like on purpose, at a leash that holds an animal, you can't quite put your finger on at first until you ask him, ask the man, and then he tells you it's a weasel. So we get the man first, then we get the suggestion of drugs, so the camera goes from the man in his mouth like the you know the language he's speaking what he's asking to his damaged finger twitching idly to a leash at a leash to the animal on the leash so it's almost like we get the speaker looking the person up and down but like looking down the person's body um so we see the man we see his mouth we see his finger we see the leash that he's holding on to and then we see the weasel that's like a beautiful example of like how you control the line to release information. But also the suggestion of the animal on the leash is a suggestion of bondage. And when I think about the speaker not being able to quite put his finger on the animal, an animal, you can't quite put your finger on it first for some reason. And again, maybe because I've dealt with the embodied experience of addiction, something strikes me as, You know, an animal that you can't quite put your finger on at first yourself, you know, you ask him, ask him, and then he tells you it's a weasel. So do you think, again, when you think about a weasel as like a deceitful or treacherous person, like who in the poem, you got the speaker, you have the man, who in the poem is like being deceitful? You know, one wants to think, oh, the man, this potentially like foreign person who's who's suggesting that they use drugs together and has this weird ass animal on a leash. But what if it's actually the speaker being deceitful, deceiving himself or trying to the second decision, trying to achieve something by use of cunning or deceit, trying to what is the speaker trying to achieve in this sentence? He started out trying to achieve the like to feel something, you know. Um, so can, yeah,
0: sorry. I I... In a, no, I just love everything about the way you're reading it. And I wanted to say something before I forget it, especially the point about him being deceitful and who he's being deceitful to. I think a lot of times we just default into trusting a speaker that they're being honest with us. And at the end of the poem, he reveals that he has taken drugs, not when or with whom, but presumably with this man. But we don't see that. And we read his thoughts as consecutive, and clearly he's leaving some things out for us. And the way he leaves things out ends up helping us see his mindset, because my favorite part about the weasel and everything you, everything you said in the way you read it, I love, but I love that it just gives us his mindset. He tells you it's a weasel, and of course, it is. You've seen them. You remember now. You say... Of course, a weasel, and of course, a weasel is so unexpected, and it tells us exactly where his mindset is. That the weasel is a surprise to us as readers, and for him, no, of course, it's a weasel.
1: I, I, I know, I know, I'm familiar with weasels, you know, like, and that's, and you know, it's right before he goes into there are men inside the world, and I think of that period, that first period there, as like perhaps a place where time has lapsed, you know, and how we leap from the man and the weasel to now we're back inside the speaker's head. Cause it goes from like, it starts in the interior dialogue and then interior monologue. And then this external place that the speaker's in and this interaction with someone else. And then a period. And and then after the period we're back inside his mind and now he's musing on men and hurt So that that sort of suggested lapse of time in between could be how we get from like wanting to feel something to then suddenly not wanting to feel hurt anymore. This cycle of seeking and settling for something less than what we actually want that we thought was going to get us there.
0: That's fantastic. We haven't mentioned the form other than the line breaks yet. Now, I, I mean, there's so much more we could say about this poem, but I do want to go ahead and transition to your own poem. The Phillips poem is in couplets, and I'd like to turn to your poem, which is also in couplets. All the men that summer, who said I love you, which for listeners appears in Horsepower, which find read. You actually have a lot of poems in couplets, or or quite a few poems in couplets in the book. But why don't you go ahead and read the poem, and then. Uh, I'll ask you some questions, we'll talk about it.
1: All the men that summer who said, I love you. After I made it out to the country, the panic attacks came on like minutes, indiscernible, ceaseless. The fence leaned perpetually and the AC unit droned on and on in the window of the double wide. The mail planes passed overhead like water from a hose. The most I counted while out for a smoke was 13, landing one behind the other. Out there, the world was steady, untroubled, but my body wouldn't let me believe. Brandy's mother let me sit alone in her jacuzzi for hours, comforted me with rolled cigarettes and coffee, a hymnal heavy hand on the back. Brandy came home with a bottle of Captain every night after her shift at the Golden Corral and sat with me under the tin roof on the makeshift porch while I confessed how that summer after my fiance followed me through Chinatown for an hour yelling it while I looked for the bus stop, I'd pissed myself and rode the 14 hours back to Kentucky, mildew and smoke. And how once there my father said it While he rifled through my fiance's abandoned car, looking for evidence. And again, he said it while he was interrogating me in drunken fits after finding the name Muhammad on the insurance cards. And are you fraternizing with a foreign operative over and over again with a loaded pistol between us on the kitchen table and how I'd fled him as I would an assailant, ending up at Misty's, a woman I waited tables with. And how her husband had looked at me desperately as I was leaving and said it, I love you. And how he'd crept into the room where I slept whispering it, while Misty was sound asleep in the next, an empty balloon lightly dusted on the nightstand. And how there had been no panic in my body then, and then, and then, and then, then, or then.
0: Thank you so much. I am such a fan of this poem. There are many things I love about it and a couple things I want to ask about. One of the things I love about it is just there's this intense ongoingness that the poem gets at and we see it in the people repeated, the men repeatedly yelling it. We see it in the panic attacks coming on like minutes, which is just so that's fantastic. I love that so much. The airplanes, there's just this constant ongoingness and the body my body wouldn't let me believe trying to get out of this kind of cycle and and not being able to. And I just think it's so powerfully done. So my first question about it is the poem doesn't get to what the title refers to the men saying, I love you until maybe halfway through the poem. Not exactly. I haven't counted stanzas and, but it's not rendered as I love you. It's rendered as it. And I'm just curious about how that choice came about. As you were writing the poems.
1: Wow, it's so hard to think back to like the <laughs> construction of these poems because I like worked on this book for ten years and then it came out and I read from it um like several times a week during the pandemic on Zoom to where I was like disgusted by it and then I set it down and didn't think about it for like a year. And so I feel so far away from who I was when I was constructing these poems. But as I read it now, it feels like you know, I remember a kind of alienation from the phrase, and especially when it as it was coming from these men. I think another poem in the book that I wrote around this time was upon reading James Lipton's "Exaltation of Larks." Basically, the poem is like an etymological investigation of the root word, uh, the word "venery," which is the root word for both hunting and love. And and so I I think I remember as I wrote this poem and after the experience that I had the person of this summer, I was feeling like oh I had the, it was like I had had this great epiphany where like, oh yes, men can very much love you, but their love is insufficient and and you know I was thinking about my father and I was also thinking about these you know men who I had encountered that were saying it but like not showing it I guess and so the, so I think it produced this kind of alienation where uh, that I wanted to capture between meaning and between words and meaning maybe or meaning and action or something words and action
0: i like that a lot because in every instance where it's yelled it's yelled almost as if either a threat or an apology or a kind of reminder that is supposed to you know stop you from the reaction that you're having to what seems like threatening situation but in every instance is a threatening situation and it it gets at the way, and you didn't mention this, and I didn't mention it either yet, that, that when the word it appears, it's always at the end of a line, and it's always in italics with a capital I, and so it has this extra threat built into it just on the page, we see the way in which it's, and that alienation from it, I think, is is something a lot of people feel from that phrase, it, the particular context here are capture the way in which it can be used, particularly against women as a kind of threat as a way to justify certain kinds of threat and violence. and I just think that's really, really powerfully done here
1: and, and also as like a thing we've been socialized, like the sort of end we've been socialized towards as women to like that's the go to like get a man to love you and men are very aware of that. you know that's like the ultimate thing that can be held back you know, and and until a moment like this when you really need to convince someone to stay or whatever the case. I think if I would have used a phrase early on in the poem where the fiance is yelling it, you know, while following the speaker through Chinatown, it wouldn't have, it could have created some empathy within the reader for the fiance because I don't reveal what the fiance did for the speaker to be running away. So it could very much look like a romantic comedy. (laughs) you know. And that's also why I wanted to like, Copped to the like pissing the speaker pissing herself afterwards to like allude to a kind of more sinister, you know, thing that had happened between them. And then if I would have used it with the father, it could have had this sort of patriarchal effect. Like I love you, and so I'm doing this to protect you. And so in each of those moments, I felt it was like I don't want to say it yet. I don't want to use the phrase yet because there's a way in which that phrase disarms us. In these moments, we're like sort of conditioned to to allow certain behavior when it's deployed, and for me, in this, this it couldn't be denied. in in the last, you know, I was actually holding it. I was obviously holding it back to the end, but also because of the situation where it finally comes into the poem. You can't deny the sort of insanity, I guess, of it being used in that instance
0: something else that's insidious about it is that you talk about the way we're acculturated to hear it that there is it's also a call expecting a response that we're so conditioned to saying i love you too and i think that's just such a smart choice to have it only be there on the page as i love you in this moment because it's a moment where he's trying to create something like romance when instead he's creating terror and it's and basically it's 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 a come on that's trying to find something to match it. You know, he's probably expecting and hoping that I love you back. And so it's that's just such a great choice. I I do apologize for asking, oh, wouldn't you know, when you wrote this, because it's so hard to remember. I sent my friend uh, I've been working on a novel. I sent it to a friend and he occasionally would text me photos of of things he liked in the manuscript. And almost every time I thought, what is that from? oh yeah, I think I wrote that. And I would go back to the manuscript and double check. Like you you can you can forget what you've written and how and when. So, but I do want to ask about the couplets. You do write, at least in Horsepower, There's there are quite a few poems in couplets. You also have a, a knockout Sestina, which is so hard to do. I, I love that poem. But you have a lot of poems in couplets and this one is in couplets. And also there are these extra spaces between the stanzas. I'm curious, I mean, op- unless the past suddenly reveals itself to you and you remember. Uh, how do you think about that now, looking back at the poem, about that choice?
1: Yeah, I think I thank you for the, rephr- the phrased articulation of that question. You know, but with that being said, someone recently just asked me the same question about this poem. When I say that, for me, the couplet, maybe similar to the tercet for Kevin Young, like the couplet just feels like such a natural mode for me. I usually draft in couplets. You know, the first draft I do, I just like trying to get it down. But like early drafts, like as I'm like trying to really get that first iteration of the poem down, you can kind of track each thing you release to the poem. And then also like the line, it just works well for me. But, you know, typically now I'll think, well, is Couplet right for this poem, you know, in terms of things like, is there duality happening? Is there a 2 But I just feel really comfortable in the couplet. And the extra spaces, that's the really the part that the person was asking me about. And I cannot remember exactly why I made that decision. But I think it had something to do with needing space between, you know, what the what one thing this poem is doing is trying to de- pick PTSD without saying PTSD. Like I'm telling my students a lot like don't use the words of therapy please like <laughs> it's not our it's not our language as poets like how do we like again get the feeling of the experience there not the thought of the experience and and I wanted the the reader to experience it with me and you know, what it, like you said, the ongoingness in the beginning, like what it was like to be removed from the violence, but still my body still reacting to the violence, you know, that wasn't there. You know, when I draft, I read through the poem each time. I needed it slowed down sort of a little bit. Like I needed some space between each aspect of the violence that I let into the poem. And also, I think it honestly, like it feels like the plane's landing, like the steadiness of the plane's landing. I think it maybe introduces a kind of steadiness into the poem. Like it's going to it's ongoing. It's going to keep coming. But it's 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 coming at a steady pace. Like. I don't know. So I think it has to do with that being said to wrap it up, I think it has to do with like timing and the, the rhythm of the rhythm of violence or the rhythm of. The result of violence.
0: I love that because sometimes formal choices, it feels like we have ways of explaining them, and other times there's just something intuitive about them. It's just like this is the thing the poem needs. And everything you explain about it makes sense. And it's one of those things that I I could have come up with my own explanation as well. And a lot of it would have had to do with pacing and and timing because the other poems in the couplets this is this is the one that's very most about sort of the obsessive repetition trying to get away from it and so the space makes sense here and trying to break that repetition and then that we finally by the end of the poem have just the one line and the repetition goes on it's just a one line though it's in my body then and then and then and then or then And I love the and then that final or that's just fantastic uh, last thing I will mention is I love the phrase a hymnal heavy hand on the back that's just that's awesome thank you for that <laughs> so
1: Kentucky for sure Um I just wanted to say I just remembered like having actually experienced the things in this poem in one compact range of time like this summer I remember what was going on inside my body but then trying to externalize it was very difficult because one it sounds fucking crazy if you try to tell how you doing like how you doing oh I just had this crazy summer let me tell you everything that happened this summer you know and there's you know all these things you face like oh people are gonna think I'm crazy or people are gonna think I'm just like in a, you know, state of victimhood or blah, 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 blah. I don't know these things. I don't know why, but you know, those things that go through your mind. And it was like, I really needed to slow myself down as I was trying to capture the experience. There was so much that had happened. So it was also a needing to slow myself down to finally articulate what i had experienced. Also, this poem is after my teacher, I wrote this in a workshop with Samuel Amadon. And it was after his poem, I read his first book called The Hartford Book. He grew up in Hartford, Connecticut. And it was like, I don't know, that book reminds me of like the movie Eight Mile with Eminem. <laughs> it's a very gritty book. Um, and, he, and it's narrative. He doesn't write that way at all now. He writes like, he's a very avant-garde poet. But that one book, anyways, I found it. And the first poem in the book was The One Person That Winter Who Said I Love You. So, I think when I read that poem because of it also sort of just goes through a series of violence that went in a wind in a season and the, I think that poem like allowed me it opened up the way for me to be able to finally articulate this summer. And it was like I want to say 3 years after that summer.
0: Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about this poem. We've been talking about some pretty heavy things, and now it's time to set heavy things aside the way we have set childish things aside and come back. (laughs) This transition makes no sense. I'll cut this. It's time for first an ad. I'll go ahead and warn you that my sense of humor is not for everybody. We'll see if it's for you. We have, as an ad this week, the TMZ spinoff TMP. You want all the hot goss on your favorite poets and your least favorite? We've got it, and we're going to spill the tea. Who thinks his mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun? Whose daddy issues have her feeling like she's living in a brown shoe? To find out, watch TMP. Who had some horses? Who so lists to hunt? We know where is a hind. Watch TMP. Who tried to fill someone's compact and delicious body with chicken paprika? Who wasn't grateful to his father for warming the house on winter Sundays? What did he know? What did he know? Who watched the best minds of his generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, and did nothing about it? For all the answers and cattiness you can take, watch TMP, now on the E! Network, appearing after E! News and P! News. (laughs) Yeah, the look on your face tells me. (laughs) There's 45 seconds you'll never get back.
1: Goodness, no, I love that you just take the time out of your life to do this, you know?
0: Well, you know, I've I finished working on a novel right before the semester started. And now, pretty much, all my creative work because I've got I've got nothing in me to write right now. So all my creative energy is going into those ads. Joy, are you ready to play a game?
1: I don't know, but let's go. Let's do it.
0: You're from Kentucky. Do you listen by choice to any country music?
1: Um. Yes, I have some in a couple mixes. Yeah, I love. Con- well, I don't like pop country. Be like, you know, artful like bluegrass or Americana.
0: Yeah, you don't listen to the hottie and short shorts and jean shorts, and here's a here's a beer in the truck.
1: I did that summer though.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I well, we don't need to talk about our past musical tastes. I've always had immaculate taste, so we won't go back there. Today we are playing a game that I am calling Mamas Don't Let Your AI Grow Up to Be Poets. So this is a game I've taken the title or the first line of a poem, and I've put it into an AI generator for creating country song lyrics. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna read you either the title or the first verse or the chorus, and I want you to try to guess the poem. If you'd like a hint after the first clue, you can have one. Joy, are you ready?
1: I think I understand the directions, yes.
0: Okay. Number one, I'm going to read you the first verse. Well, I was sitting in my old front porch swing, southern breeze gently kissing my face. Oh, what a thing. A rocking chair creaking with all the tales it could tell when out of nowhere, I heard a dreaded buzzin' and a yell. Do you have a guess?
1: Is it um, The Raven?
0: It's not. Let me give you the title. This is the, the hint. The title is The Buzzin' of Life's Goodbye.
1: I'm not going to be able to guess
0: it. It's I heard a fly buzz when I died by Emily Dickinson.
1: Maybe. Okay. Now I need, I needed a primer to kind of understand the, the broadness of the, okay.
0: Yeah. That makes sense.
1: Now the rock and chair and all that. Okay.
0: I'll go ahead and say that on every episode, I've had to apologize because I cannot figure out the difficulty level of these games in part, because they're so stupid that the difficulty level almost doesn't matter. Number two, Again, starting with the first verse. And I will go ahead and tell you that the clues to what the poem is tend not to be very obvious in the first stanza or in the first verse. They almost always come in the last line of the first verse. I'll say that. Deep in the heart of Dixie, where the magnolias sway, I've got a story to tell about a land so grand, they say. From the mighty Mississippi to the Georgia pines, this here songs about freedom that forever shines. So it's
1: definitely going to be a Southern poet.
0: <laughs> Actually, let me go ahead and tell you that no matter what I put in, it would reference somewhere. Dixie, Southern breeze. <laughs>
1: All right. oh, what's the title?
0: The title is y'all. I sing America.
1: Oh, I too sing America. Walt Whitman. No, wait. Langston Hughes.
0: Langston Hughes. You got it. All right. One for two. I, I love y'all. I sing America. Oh my gosh. All right. Number three. There are only five of these. Don't worry. Number three. The first verse is down. <laughs> sorry, this is so stupid. Down in the Carolina hills where the wild freedom roams. There's a place where my rights run deep, where my roots have found a home. From the cotton fields to the courthouse steps where justice was let loose. I've got a poem in my heart. Filled with tales of rights pursued.
1: I'm just belling at this. Ah,
0: So, well, I'll give you, I'll go ahead and give you the title. I don't know how much of a clue the title is. My Rights Run Deep.
1: I know. I I was thinking it has to do something to do with rights. Who was writing about that? My Rights, Poem for My Rights, Poem for My Rights by June Jordan.
0: Yes, fantastic. (laughs) Poem about my rights, but fantastic. That's that's great. It's also, if you compare that poem to the, the lyrics that it came up with, they're from very deeply different perspectives. All right, number four. This time I'm starting with the chorus, because the first line gave it away. We're the cool cats, southern born and raised. We've got stories to tell, memories that won't fade. In this old southern land where the spirit flows, We'll keep keeping cool wherever we may go.
1: I, I think everything in there was pretty vague. Um, coolness feels
0: feels specific. you want the title? The title is not going to help you. Well, it might. The Cool Cats of the South. Oh,
1: man. Can you say the, the chorus one more time?
0: How about I give you the first line?
1: A good, this is a good game, though. I like this game.
0: Yeah, it, it tells me a lot about AI and that I don't really need to worry about it yet in terms like, of writing poems.
1: It's the AI-ness that's so vague. Because that's the thing. That's the reason why I can't be a good poet.
0: Well, part it's- of the difficulty is you can only, on the generator, you can only put in 30 characters. And so I wanted to put in, like, a stanza from a poem and just couldn't. And mm-hmm. in a couple of cases, I would put... You can put in half of a line and make that a keyword, and then another half of a line and make that a keyword, and it just didn't work. I'll I'll give you the
1: what you said about not being scared of AI is important though, because sort of like the what the poet does is like create an original way to say something. And AI is pulling from what's already been said. So inherently.
0: Yeah, exactly. And every time I've shown AI. Versions of things, usually not poems. My students are always like, that's boring. And those two things are incorrect. So (laughs) we're the cool cats, Southern born and raised. We've got stories to tell, memories that won't fade. In this old Southern land where the spirit flows, we'll keep keeping cool wherever we may go.
1: Memories fade, cool cats. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to.
0: All right. You're going to kick yourself when I tell you the first line. We Real Cool Sipping Whiskey by the Porch.
1: Cats! Cool! <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh-huh. oh, I felt bad putting some of these in there. All right. Last one, and then I'll have a bonus one that just cracks me up. All right, number five. Uh, I'm going to give you the title and the first verse. The title is Midnight Train, Lord's Glory. On a with do- <laughs> Sorry, on a dusty porch, rocking slow. Mama told me about the day, don't you know? Said the good Lord will come again someday, riding on a midnight train, so they say.
1: Well, I just think of midnight train to Georgia.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In my head, I'm going, whoop, woo, and it's not in there at all. It's not not midnight train to Georgia. That is very, very distracting uh, generation from AI here you want the chorus i will say i'm actually a little impressed by the way it interpreted the title i gave it the chorus is oh here it comes that second coming round oh i'm sorry no here it comes that second coming sound southern souls let your voice resound gather round, sing his story true on that midnight train lord's glory for me and you
1: another emily dickinson poem is
0: it no it's not I'll give you a hint. It's an Irish poet.
1: Don't don't go gently into that good night.
0: No, it is W. B. Yeats, The Second Coming. Oh, see, it's,
1: I I don't I don't know Yeats that well, so I just didn't know that one. Don't yeah, tell.
0: that that makes sense. Well, you you got uh, two out of five correct, so you do win a. Oh no, no need to feel bad that this game is not designed for people to, to to get the the answers. I'm I'm a little sad about the cool cats of the south, but I won't I won't <laughs> hold it over your head. The bonus I put in a quinceañera by Judith Ortiz Cofer and it gave me the title Sweet 16 in a Cotton Field, which is hilarious since a quinceañera is for someone's 15th birthday. <laughs> so, anyway, joy Thank you so much for being here. Before we sign off, just to give you the opportunity to plug something, can you talk a little about uh, Once a City Said, a Louisville Poets anthology?
1: Oh, yes, I can. Well, you know, I'm really grateful for a review that was recently done in the poetry question about it by Ronnie Stevens. And I always say, like, you just artists, we just make the thing and the critics talk about it. And like, I think that's where you go for the best. Review of it, but you know, I I taught a workshop for Sarah Ban in 2020, and I'm from Louisville. The city was like, you know, out in the streets, and uh, you know, on the news, no one was from there. They weren't interviewing anyone from there. So I said, let's go ahead and and put something together, writers on the ground, and so it was an anthology conceived in the aftermath of Breonna Taylor's murder. Um, Thirty-seven poets from Louisville. Um, Writing poems about the Louisville's history, icons, songs, protests, places, lore, anything like that. So it's been doing pretty well to be an anthology. And I'm grateful for all the support.
0: That's fantastic. I love not only the anthology, I love the generation of it. Thank you so much for being here, Joy. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Read some poems, pet some dogs, and support striking workers wherever you may find them. Bye.